0: Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the paths toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. Well, Adam, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Been a long day, but happy to be chatting. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for hopping on at the end of the workday. And um, uh, could you go ahead and get started and just give us kind of like a brief bio and some of the big things you're interested in? Sure, sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, my the the common interest. I'm trained as a scientist. I I think that my my main interest has really been in advanced sort of physical technologies since since I was a teenager. I was interested in nanotechnology. I read a lot of sci-fi books. Um, my, you know, academic training is in physics and biophysics, a little bit in neuroscience, um, but I've always been coming at those sort of from a Frontier engineering, kind of almost sci-fi engineering perspective. You know, uh, l- l- less less so just thinking about um, how to advance the scientific research topic now, and more kind of, well, what would be the huge nuclear sledgehammer that we could bring to this problem. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, maybe we can talk about some of that, but that was sort of the ap- approach for better or for worse that I was taking within in neuroscience that has, has somewhat led to over the years to the realization that, uh, in some cases we don't have an organizational mechanism to push hard enough in a concerted enough fashion on certain technologies that impact even very basic research, let alone, uh, more product oriented, uh, technology. um, That's sort of led to what I'm I'm working on now.
0: That's awesome. And could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, where you think that gap is like, like where's the gap in like either funding or like incentive structures, whatever uh, to get those, those gains.
1: Well, what I've been talking about with a lot of people, including some of your previous podcast guests like Ben uh, Reinhardt and, and others is that there actually, there are multiple different gaps and there are probably multiple different ways of of fixing those gaps. Um, What my particular lens coming from a couple different areas, particularly neuroscience, a little bit nanotechnology, sort of biomolecular adjacent sciences has told me is that there's also a gap uh, in the development of sort of fundamental platforms and tools that would be used not only by end users, but by researchers developing the next generation of knowledge and technology um, around tools and platforms and systems, which which require kind of tight knit, concerted systems engineering type approaches to build, but where either the end users of that or the communities that would be involved in building that uh, exist within more of the basic research ecosystem um you know if you if you need to make a vr headset or something you know that's something where you can get a lot of systems engineering behind it in the context of a company um right. if you need to make a robot that does brain mapping or a microscope that looks at proteins um or potentially some other other if you want platforms in in areas that are still somehow pre-commercial for whatever reason or generating a public good rather than a commercial product for whatever reason um I think there's a gap there that's partly because of how our, our research system is organized where it's sort of fragmented into thousands of individual academic laboratories for the most part um, with less ability to organize kind of startup or industrial like structures for building stuff.
0: Gotcha. So, so it's something where like, you know, maybe the, the, the labs themselves are kind of too small to take on this kind of task and then like, uh, it's not quite at the level for you know it, it's not close enough for commercialization like uh, at the startup phase and like venture capital um, and so there, there's some like middle ground where where things are missed and and where there's kind of uh, uh, a, a, you could do a lot so just- right right i i think so and i think a, a lot of it has to do with
1: again this this comes back to the idea of there being multiple gaps but but the kind of common theme is is the idea that uh the research system is particularly in the biomedical sciences is sort of a bit homogenous structurally. There are lots of researchers applying for the same relatively small scale grants and training students and postdocs who then want to get into an academic position where they can apply for the similar kinds of grants. Okay. And no, nowhere in there, uh, with some notable exceptions, um, certain large institutes or if you want the sort of startup ecosystem around biomedical tools. Uh, but for the most part, um, it's much harder to, to organize a, a team to build a system where the goal is not to keep participating in that particular system of getting these types of grants and writing the types of gotcha. papers that lead to the, getting those types of grants.
0: That makes sense. So it's something where like the incentives, especially on the, like at the lab level are, uh, academic research labs, you know, all the graduate students want to get into a similar academic position. You need to publish. Um, so, you know, you like, you got to get your as many, uh, you know, high end publications as you can to get an academic position. It's intensely competitive. And so, like, the, the only goal you can really have is like get as many publications as possible to, to make it on the employment ladder. Yeah. And picking.
1: Taking three years to put together a, a CEO-led 20-person team and get millions of dollars of funding and move outside the university and th- those kinds of activities, they would, be, they would constitute a pretty big risk and a right. divergence from that model. It's a bit of an oversimplification. Lots of people are now increasingly in the last five or six years leaving to do biotech startups instead of doing uh, the academic path. Um, there are some fantastic new institutes and old institutes that are changing some of this, but for the most part, um, what your description is, is sort of the, the, the problem, sociological kind of problem setting uh, in the biomedical sciences. And I, I think that that extends to to other fields in, in, in different ways where uh, people talk about technology somehow being stuck in the lab, but I think it's a, it's a little bit more to it than that. It's, it's not that you necessarily want to just take it out of the lab. You might want a different kind of lab, um, in which right. a different kind of team is working on that technology. Um, even at a pre-commercial or pu- kind of public good or public data set generating phase.
0: That makes sense. I, I really like that. Um, this is a broader question, and it's a bit of a left-hand turn. But in, in general, do you think science works better than it has in the recent past? You know, since like the seventies or fifties, the seventies, like, or do you think it's working less well? Do you think it's better? About the same? Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I th-
1: I think that I am a little bit skeptical of the premise of saying "quote unquote" science, and then "quote unquote" science. better. <laughs> quote-unquote, better or worse. Because right, I think
0: right, that's too, quite broad.
1: It, it can mean, and I, it's, I, I, I don't mean t- even to push back on because I think it is a very worthwhile question to ask, but I, I, I think that my personal interest is on kind of hyper-specific uh, and highly heterogeneous uh, kind of cases of this and yeah. sort of finding the ecological niches that may be coming into or out of existence to different degrees, um, I think that there is a general trend, though, that I, I alluded to, uh, which is, which is it's a theory, I think. It's, this is not coming, in my case, from a, a detailed academic analysis of it, but um, that there has been this kind of proliferation of federally funded science in a certain kind of model and um, done in universities, which I think on the whole, it's a good thing. And it's a good thing to proliferate even. Right, um, And in no way would I push back. I think there might need to be more PhD students now in the future than there are now. So yeah. it's not, I'm not saying that, Oh, there's too many PhD students or something. Um, but, but structurally uh, there's too homogenous, a set of incentives and this, parts of the system have become so competitive that uh, there's a kind of a, so competitive along so few ecological niches that are meaningfully distinct that kind of a lot of free energy kind of gets sucked out of the system, right? You're spending all your time competing for certain kinds of, uh, of uh, p- progress that you need in, in, in order to stay in the system. Um, whereas the, my imagination of fifties and sixties science is that there were in some sense, many more ways to do it or many more kinds of scientists and, uh, and sometimes much more trust placed in individuals uh, or sort of more speculative visions, um, potentially longer term activities, um, different kinds of institutes, different kinds of personalities and that we're putting so many requirements on people to be able to get those NIH R01 grants right uh, and and the equivalence of them for other other types of researchers that we might be sucking some of the air out of the system at this point um, but at the same time other things have emerged like startups uh, right. where you can do extraordinary new kinds of research if you have the right match to a business opportunity and uh, and, and, and and there's still there's still lots of really fundamental uh, stuff coming out. Um, you know, I, some fields, I think, are working incredibly well. Quantum computing, I think, is working stunningly well uh, at basically every level, from the basic intellectual creativity all the way down to, you know, hardware engineering and commercialization. My impression is that quantum computing, both in the US and other places like China, is just booming and that it would have been very impressive even by 1960s standards, maybe even more so because it's proliferating. If you go on the internet on archive.org, you know, you'll see like a hundred quantum computing papers come up every few hours, you know, and, and it's just uh, a lot of them are good. Right. <laughs> and so it, I think, I think there's some fields that are making really stunning progress overall. We're making a, a pretty decent amount of progress. And then I'm interested in finding the sort of micro niches where you could unlock um, particular types of progress definitely
0: yeah. yeah it's really interesting and, and i like your approach and you mentioned free ener- energy and, and and that reminds me of inadequate equilibria which i, I know yeah, you've read. that's exactly where that's from Yeah, that's exactly. awesome so it's i, I and sense, I, yeah. I found the book on your blog i was like oh that's awesome that's, And cr- I, i'm
1: glad you asked about that yeah I, I, it's a really useful mental framing somehow i uh it's it's a little hard to capture like what is actually like the thesis of that book that isn't somehow like already known to everyone but at right. another level like it has a lot of useful framings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, exactly. It's, it's really. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're saying about the book. Um. And, and could you talk about that a little bit? Because I think you know the area you're looking in. It, it. It's interesting, right? Because it's it's underserved. Um. And and you know we can talk about FROS a little bit and like more speci- specificity. But um. I. I'm curious. You know. How did you go about thinking like. Like, like when you're thinking about this problem originally, like I need to go work on this. You know, how did you think about, you know, okay, like, may, you know, why is everyone missing this? You know, I, I guess like, I, and that's kind of a vague question, but, but you know, what was that thought process like?
1: Yeah, it wasn't at all obvious to me. It's, it's, it's the result of, I would say, 10 or so years of being in the research system. Um, it was not at all obvious to me that there was a gap of this type. And it didn't come in my case from a systematic analysis of the type Eliezer Yuskowski does in inadequate equilibria of the general kinds of incentive traps and, uh, uh, you know, emergent phenomena and systems and stuff like that. It didn't come from that and didn't come from historical analysis. Uh, It just came from an odd situation that I was in where I was this uh, kind of very bullish, excited new graduate students, maybe a rationally exuberant early graduate student. I had been doing a bunch of physics research as an undergrad. I hadn't had any real obstacles in my way. It was all very fun and exciting. Yeah. Um, and I was in a grad program in in, in biophysics with a, a very high freedom fellowship that basically let me do whatever I want, a grad program that would let me do whatever I want, and an advisor that would let me do whatever I want. And so I had this kind of irrational exuberance about the kind of problems that I could pursue as a graduate student <laughs> that in retrospect, you know, anybody who had a decent, you know, my PhD mentor was amazing, but anyone who had a, a traditional uh, PhD mentor would have seen the traps that I was getting myself into. But uh, you know, my, the first project that I wanted to do was to try to create a, a fabrication method that would would allow you to put any molecule at any location on a chip, over a centimeter scale with 10 That's nanometer awesome. resolution or something using DNA nanostructures. Uh, and then, then we, we tried to make, um, you know, genes that couldn't mutate and we, we tried to record all the neurons in the brain into DNA. And we had just a really good time with, with, with really big ideas. But uh, what I struggled to do was to recruit more than a couple people to kind of work coherently with me on these things right it was always this dance of writing joint grants with other academic labs and what does this postdoc want to do and you know uh what do they have funding for versus what do we have funding for and 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 kind of um it there, there wasn't a, a, a kind of growth model or, or, or development track that was the equivalent of saying, hey, we're going to start a startup on right. doing molecular recording of neurons in the brain, or we're going to start a, a startup of making a nanometer to centimeter molecular chips. There, yeah. there wasn't a clear model for, for doing that. Um, and so I tried in various settings. I tried in the academic setting and we tried to get both government and philanthropic, you know, large scale grants in the academic setting particularly to do things around uh, large-scale brain mapping approaches um, that kind of combine a bunch of technologies in a somewhat high-risk and complicated way. Um, Eventually, I I, I sort of tried to do that also in the for-profit sector with a sort of billionaire-funded startup um, adjacent to neuroscience um, uh, called Kernel, which was a really great experience, uh, where we were able to just pull together teams in this incredible way. I mean, we could, I remember an instance where, you know, one week we decided we wanted to work on uh, uh, atomically precise, uh, not uh, atomically pumped uh, magnetometers, um, a a new different way of sensing magnetic fields coming from the brain. And we were like, okay, let's like call up this lab at at NIST and like find like where all their best postdocs went and like call those up. And like a few weeks later, like we we had those people. They had like flown to oh, LA awesome. and were like working on like atomic, uh, atomic, uh, optically pumped uh, atomic magnetometers. Um, sorry for botching the 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 what we were actually working on, but um, and that was that was really great. Even in that setting, uh, I think there was a very strong pressure to say, "What's the near term commercial path right. for this?" And. Uh, it would have been hard for us to be pursuing something just for the good of science or humanity right. uh, or, or neuroscience in, with that kind of uh, facility of being able to put in people and invest in, in specific projects. Um, and then finally, uh, you know, I spent some time at DeepMind and I saw their ability to do this really well, um, this thing that I want, which is the ability yeah. to sort of pull together these tight knit teams and do systems work uh, in something that isn't immediately a product. In this case, an example, what they did was protein folding. Another one was go playing um, You know, computers. That was really, really impressive. But then I was still sitting there thinking to myself, well, this is great, but this is just AI and computing. How do right. you do it still for biology? And so I just directly, like, I think I just tried by process of exclusion, Um, given a very lucky situation where I was often very well funded and working with amazing people and having great environments that even in those settings uh, kind of best case scenario settings um, and mentors and all that, it was very hard to do this kind of, Get this kind of project to exist, even very hard to even spend time talking about it, because why are they paying you to spend time talking about that, right? Um, you're supposed to be doing something useful, like writing a paper or something, right? Yeah. So anyway, so I I I found the gap just uh, by by trial and error, and then now what we've been doing is a couple of us that have found the same gap are now sort of generalizing that and saying, well, putting it putting putting words to it, um, yeah.
0: That that's. That's really awesome. And um, this reminds me th- this is a this is a consistent theme I've heard on, on quite a, from quite a few guests in, in different ways. Um, have you heard of uh Don Braven's Scientific Freedom? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So we we had Don on, you know, he's like 85, awesome. still sharp. It's awesome, Amazing. you know, really, really cool guy. Um, but you know, it it seems really important. To you know, have a certain amount of slack to pursue like these kind of it's kind of like uh you can get stuck in these weird like you know local in, in places where you can't like get over the next hump, and yeah. Um, it, so so what does it look like? Does does your model you know do you think about it kind of like Don does, where you find like you know a smart person, smart team, and you just give them kind of unrestricted small you know it doesn't even have to be a huge amounts of money, but just enough so they get enough flexibility to pursue the research goals. You know w- what do you think it right. looks like?
1: Yeah, well, I think what you just said and in that model that that actually relates to what I was just saying about the, the kind of enviably high freedom situation that right. I was in, because uh, in 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 realizing these these types of problems, because uh, if I had had to just write good papers right, instead of doing what I whatever I was doing and brainstorming about uh, nanometer to centimeter chips and stuff. Um, I don't think we would have even thought up these thoughts. And, and so, so one, one distinction I would make is between what is the, what is the early stage model that allows people to come up with really new ideas and really new directions and even new meta directions like focused research organizations is more like a meta direction Yeah, that all relies, I think very much. Yes. On this kind of just fund smart people that want to dream about stuff and let them just, work on those things in a totally self-organized way and none of the outcomes that i've had in my work have been at all predictable even a few years in advance even the places i'm working not predictable right and so i've benefited a lot from that kind of ultra high freedom and i think we need much more of that yeah um then when it comes to the specific projects and the specific teams uh now zooming into a particular idea which is the focus research organizations um that, I think, requires more of a coordinated set of stakeholders to gotcha. get involved and, and more of a road mapping process. And it would actually be potentially a very bad idea to do that on something where there's already startups or where it's just better done as an academic project in the yeah. traditional sense. Um, so it needs a lot of, I think, scrutiny uh, of are you hitting a particular bottleneck in the field that you need a public goods generating philanthropic or governmental, you know, nonprofit org to be formed? Is it worthwhile for people to take the risk on these projects and divert from what they would otherwise be doing? Do you have to go through all the hassle and complexity of figuring out teams and roles and compensation and all these things that that startups have to figure out? Um, It's quite a schlep to create a new organization to solve a problem. It's also quite a schlep for a funder to give people amount of funding that justifies that we're talking tens of millions of dollars. Right. I think that the focus research organizations are actually a very different, much more directed research, much more goal-driven, OKRs, roadmaps, uh, CEOs, and teams uh, than what Braben is talking about. But I think fundamentally, like everything comes from like unrestricted research, including <laughs> the idea of FROs and probably most right. of the ideas for particular FROs are not going to result from the uh uh department of of fro uh you know milestone driven quarterly process it's going to come from weirdos being supported uh to take unconventional perspectives that are maybe not legible to others for years and and but might be legible to uh, a don braben uh who has the benefit of an individual human mind right uh talking to someone you know not a grant review committee
0: definitely you don't have to win, win over the, the, the you know a bunch of people. It's like he can uh, he can understand and like at say, the early
1: stages you need someone to trust some, what someone you're to saying. He, I don't think he does it in a completely blind trust way. I thought you know some of the stuff that that Ben has said in his interviews with him and and, and just stuff that he's written about how do you suss out systematically people who not only have an unconventional vision of some kind but kind of are so obsessively curious about that, that they actually know the specific next step to take and they can actually have an incredible level of concreteness of what they're saying. So you're not just saying, Hey, Hey, I want sort of in a purely artistic fashion. I want this thing. I have this new idea. Isn't it great? You're, you're sort of saying you're, you're able to search for people that are, have a unique vision, are obsessively curious, are so curious that they've actually gotten down to concreteness. Have a certain right. level of functionality as people so that they yeah. can get get stuff done. Um, but it's not something that I think it's a grant committee is the best right. way to do it. I think I think it is something more like like a, a individual taste.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's something weird where like. A lot of what's gone on is, you know, because no one gets, wants to get on the front page of the New York Times about how all this money was misspent. And, you know, you give it to one wrong person. You yes. Know, it, it, Blows the entire thing up. And, and Don's whole thing was like, you know, yeah, like quacks would call me like all the time. And they would say, I've solved this great new advance in theoretical physics. And he'd be like, well, like, how would that work? And then they would just never call him back,
1: which was right. Really yeah. And that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So there, 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 there's, I think that there is more ability for individual people to suss out talent and coherence of other people's ideas, even if they don't totally understand them. Because by definition, like you're, you're, it's not that Don Brabant understood everything about theoretical physics right. or something. but, but there, there, I think there are filters that individuals or small groups of people that have honed in on this can apply. You probably want multiple different kinds of people with different kinds of filters, right But I think we underestimate uh, because it's not legible, because it's not accountable in the right, right. ways. We underestimate not only how valuable it is, but also just how possible it is for somebody like Don, Bra- you know, a Don Braben to actually exist. I don't think it's just him. I think that you yeah. can, I think it's actually probably a learnable skill to sort of be like a Don Braben in, in sussing out, out good people. Yeah.
0: Which, which is, which is really weird, really weird. And, and almost like counterintuitive in, in the age we yeah. live in that, you know, like, yeah, like Don could like have some really good ideas about how the future is going to play out. And like,
1: it's, it's not at all obvious that it should be the case because you could say, well, you know, Einstein is by definition so much smarter than you <laughs> that distinguishing Einstein from a quack pot, you know, crackpot, it's, it be, be. it's not a necessarily an easy problem. I mean, you, how do you, how are you going to evaluate Einstein's ideas without being smarter than Einstein? Right. But, but uh, I've talked to Michael Nielsen about this a bunch and, you know, there are people historically that have, have done it really well. Like Michael Nielsen, gave you an example of John Wheeler, the physicist, um, Feynman was a Wheeler student yeah. and a bunch of other ones. John Wheeler was either was that the, good at selecting or just good at attracting, um, just, yeah, I, I, I yeah, I think we underestimate, uh, the power of the individual uh, mind a little bit these days and, in, in, in finding, finding good stuff.
0: Right. <laughs> and I'm reminded, uh, as who, who talked about this, maybe it was uh, Peter Thiel in relation to like the clean energy kind of bubble and the, you know, late two thousands. And he talks about Solyndra and have you ever heard of Solyndra?
1: Sure. And you
0: know like it, it's like it's not a flat panel it's a round pan like round solar panel and it's like whatever yeah. pie is efficient is like a flat one or whatever and it's like yeah. the, the phd uh department of energy had in physics couldn't it wasn't allowed to use you know simple high school tools to kind of determine that this was not going to work or something or it, yeah i don't know much weird. about
1: that sp- particular story but but yeah i think it's in this issue of individual agency is sort of it's an important it's one. Bizarre. I don't. I, I somehow heard that Solyndra was actually less of a a, a, a mistake. It was more of a politicized thing. Oh, interesting. Actually, as bad as people said it was, but but I actually don't know the details of that story. So. Fascinating. That's
0: cool. That's yeah. cool. Um, <laughs> very interesting. Um, so FROS, like, can you give me an example? Like, what's a really good uh example or like application? Like, like what kind of problem would be perfect? Is it something like Manhattan? Is it something like different? Like, what's a good example?
1: Yeah, I mean the example that I'm often giving, just because this is also this historical one that sort of motive, motivates it. Um, in my particular case, is this idea of of how do you how do you map map brain circuits? Um, and if you think about it, you know why why isn't brain circuit mapping a great company right now? Maybe it is if you have the right investor. You know, if Elon was investing in brain circuit mapping instead of Neuralink, maybe it would work out. Um, so I don't I don't exclude that it. You could do a company on it potentially, but why isn't it in a, in a kind of uh, risk benefit calculation of a venture capitalist kind of a, a great, great bet right now? Well, first of all, there's a bunch of technical risk and a bunch of, a bunch of challenges. Right. In it. second of all, it's, it's pretty capital intensive to get up to a level of scale um, where like the brain is just really big, honestly. <laughs> and so you have to get up to a pretty big level of scale. You have to create a lot of baseline data sets and kind of a lot of baseline maps you know what is what is a, a normal mouse brain look like what does a young mouse brain look like old mouse Got brain it. before you can really say what's going on that's different in schizophrenia um right it's because the human brain is so huge it's actually quite hard to apply this directly to the human brain um so you're often you're talking about model organisms um like mice where the application to something like a disease model is speculative Uh, In principle, I think this is going to be hugely impactful for artificial intelligence. And we're going to understand the architecture of the brain. It's unbelievable. But drawing a direct path of this is at any given time, the best use of an artificial intelligence, uh, venture capitalist or corporate arms money is to to invest in the fundamentals of brain mapping technology. Um, This is a big stretch. So empirically, um, you know, doing you know, $50 million scale technology development projects, which are the intern upstream of the ability to map the brain uh, circuits fast and cheap. That hasn't been an easy sell for, you know, AI companies or uh, Mm -hmm. pharma companies or biotech uh, VCs. Uh, And at the same time, it's really a problem that requires a lot of integration of different components into systems in a way that isn't easily sold as the greatest idea for your grad student thesis, right? (laughs) right. Like if your grad student thesis um, is about the chemistry for labeling neurons with different colors, um, but then that thesis for it to be useful to anyone, you know, depends very much on somebody creating an ultra fast new kind of microscope so that you can actually image those colors or somebody creating a new kind of virus that can infect those neurons. Or if you have these coordinated problems where you have to solve multiple problems together in one system, um, it's not an easy sell that this is gonna be the best paper that you can write um, in the next two years um, to, to work on, on those components. And even if you did, you might not be well coordinated with other people in other labs um, that are that are doing other parts. So, so it's an example that requires systems engineering and focus and scale and multiple microscopes and. Uh, kind of kind of a very concerted approach, but is somehow like fundamentally kind of pre-commercial unless, you know, someone like Elon decides that that, that they will just do it as a kind of risk investment and, and kind of call it a for-profit company and then see if, if they can ride it out long enough.
0: Right, right. So it's just like this weird middle ground. It's just like not yeah. not really, really achievable. That that that's, that makes a lot of sense. Um that, that actually reminds me Another another left-hand turn here. But, uh, you know, Robin Hanson's kind of age of M, like brain emulation is a path for AGI. Do you think that's that's uh, a likely scenario?
1: It hasn't been my particular, like, focus uh, or, like, interest. I think it's often frustrating to me because I think a lot of the discussion around this gets caught in questions of sort of in-principle possibility of these okay. things. And so you have neuroscientists and you have philosophers and stuff saying, Oh, this, this is nonsense. It's not in principle possible. Um, I don't think that's the right level to be questioning this. I think, I think with sufficient technology, sir, there's lots of philosophical questions. Would it really be you? And so on. Right, right. All this. I, but I, uh, I don't think that there is really an in principle kind of issue here. Uh, there are some interesting questions like, like, uh, Christoph Koch and, and, and some others have this integrated information theory idea about consciousness. And in their interpretation, at least as it was a few years ago, if you were to run a simulation of a brain on a classical von Neumann computer, like your laptop with a separate memory and a CPU and everything, that for various technical reasons of their scheme about quantifying consciousness, that that thing wouldn't be nearly as conscious. Um, than if you made a neuromorphic chip that actually had the physical connectivity similar to the way the neurons are connected in the brain. Super interesting. Um, but even then, I mean, you could make that chip, and I'm also not sure how seriously I take that particular claim. And anyway, so I don't think that there's like a in principle obstacle to doing this necessarily. Definitely. I think there's just a lot of, you know, is this a practical, desirable outcome that humanity is likely to pursue in the near term? Is that likely right. to... To be something that anybody really wants is it likely to be something that uh comes anywhere near before like very advanced ai of other kinds um i just it i haven't been convinced that this is like the the this is the ticket the right kind of framing of any of the stuff that i've been doing i think of it in terms of fundamentally understanding how brains work understanding what's different and about a diseased brain versus a healthy brain um but not uh, uploading brains per se um but certainly that's a very fascinating book uh, right. and exploration that's a bit scary about uh you know so where it's a little bit hard to maybe find what's the what's the particular assumption or hold that would make this i think somewhat dystopian outcome like right. not happen maybe it would happen
0: Definitely, <laughs> I think uh, I think that's a very wise observation. Um, well, Adam, so your original background was in theoretical physics. Is that correct? Uh,
1: yeah, that was what I did my undergrad on. Yeah,
0: and then and you kind of you kind of switched into biology. Do you think that gave you kind of a unique perspective, like on the field? It's something that uh, Ed Boyden, who's one of my
1: neuroscience mentors, has has s- suggested to actively push for in students is to, is to make sure that you learn both an empirical discipline and a theoretical discipline. Oh, interesting. Um, the theoretical part being gaining confidence in long chains of reasoning and abstraction and value of upfront design and the empirical side, just being kind of learning from your senses almost and learning uh, socially and learning in other kinds of ways that, I mean, I personally found biology lab research vastly more difficult than I found any kind of calculation, computer-based research. Uh, I think many people actually find that, although some people seem to be naturally good at at wet lab biology, I certainly was not. Um, But it was, I think, very interesting to expose myself to all that and sort of try to fight through it in various stages, uh, because it certainly changes my sense of what are possible limiting or gating factors in right. project design, or um, what kinds of personalities you need involved in projects, um, or what can go wrong? <laughs> uh, yeah, gotcha. so I think I think I think that that's something that's that's really useful. The m- most of the time, when I see really fantastic computational mathematical people sort of coming and talking, say, "Hey, well, you know, what should I work on?" I don't usually actually say, "Oh, go in." forget the fact that you're a really great theorist at the whiteboard and instead, you know, um, do, you know, solder together electronics or, 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 or um, you know, uh, dissect embryos or stuff like that. I think that in many cases people should just do what they like and what they're good right. at. And, and uh, but some people, I think having that joint exposure is, is really useful. And there's certain, certainly a, a crew of biologists that are, better than me at both <laughs> that then end up being very successful um you know systems biologists or things by having both yeah
0: gotcha i i think that that it makes a ton of sense and and uh they coming at things from different angles can can often be helpful um so adam you know another question out of left field i love questions out of left field um but I've got a lot of diverse interests, so I guess awesome. maybe that's why. I don't know. Um, Hit me up. But, uh, you know, what is common knowledge in neuroscience that kind of lay people just don't understand, don't have any idea about? Or perhaps even misunderstand? One of the things that
1: I'm not sure even anybody understands. <laughs> um, I mean, I think many of these things are just things that no, nobody understands. Um, but I mean, one of the things that I think is most interesting about neuroscience right now is like this this interplay between like sort of very uniform or kind of unifying theories and um, just kind of massive like biological heterogeneity. So so like when, when I was a teenager, you know, among other books that I was reading and whatnot, I was reading like evolutionary psychology books and like Steven Pinker, like how nice. the mind works and various specific, you know, Books like that, where they sort of talk about this like module, you know, modular model of the mind. Right, you have a different circuit that's built by evolution for each thing. Right. um You know, so you're going to have a mate detector circuit, and you're going to have a, you know, decide, you know, how to deal with conflicts in my family (laughs) circuit or something. Right. Um, You have you have a bunch of things, and you have you know detect you know. Uh, you know, all the visual tasks that are specific to hunting or something, you know, you, you'd have these sort of modules, I, I think is is part of the idea. And then there's kind of simultaneously this other body of ideas like the brain is a universal learning machine. It's a universal substrate, computronium kind of substrate. Like which Carl Friston, like, like... Yeah, Friston like- and Jeff Hawkins and a bunch of stuff before that and um, this kind of um, canonical cortical circuits and all that. And I think like what I was like really interesting to me, I, I feel like AI currently is mostly kind of on the more universal models, uh, kind of thrust. Right. Yeah. Um, what's super interesting to me is like, just how do those combine? I mean, you could say this is just nature and nurture and just how incredibly fruitful the nature and nurture problem really is. It's not a simple right. answer. It's like, uh, you know, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you, um, uh, want to form relationships as a function of social status or something when you're a teenager or something. And this is a innate biological reaction is to like participate in social status groups or whatever hierarchies that's an innate, like primate reaction. Okay, great. But like, how do you detect what a social (laughs) hierarchy is if you can't see you know if you can't see like difference between a triangle and a square right how are you supposed to know the difference between high social status and low social status right and so 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 all these things that seemingly are quote unquote innate right they yeah. actually depend on, a lot on learning too right and so somehow yeah. this the parts of your cortex that self-organized to detect shapes and then ultimately they form this abstract concept of social status or whatever has to somehow plug in and like send the right wire down, you know, to your brainstem circuit that makes you feel the certain way or whatever. And, you know, so, 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 so you have to have like both self-organized learn stuff and like ultra specific evolved stuff. They have to intersect uh, in, in some way that I think we, we really don't understand. And I think it might be partly that, compared to current AI, like basically the brain just has much more complex, like learning or training signals or reward signals. Like it's not just one reward signal. Got it. This is good or bad. It's like this part of your cortex is being trained to do this particular thing that 20 years later will ultimately, you know, influence your, you know, uh, participation in complex social, you know, uh, you know, networks and hierarchies and stuff. Um, but it's being trained you know not just with you know generic dopamine but with some you know it's a, it's a very evolved specific thing that's training a very generic thing and then you end up with some crazy interplay of those i don't, don't think we understand it all um so anyway nature and nurture i think just how incredibly rich that's going to be for the next like 50 years of neuroscience is like i think underappreciated
0: <laughs> definitely no yeah definitely that's a. Uh so much to look into into and try to understand it's, and it's all so complex it's really it's really fascinating um so you mentioned ai ai safety you know how concerned are you about ai safety and you know should we be putting more resources into it less resources doing okay what do you think
1: i'm pretty 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 serious about a variety of different potential sort of x risk topics i think nice. it's something that is sometimes Sort of dismissed by the like progress community as if there, there's, there as if there's a inherent conflict or something. I, th- I think it's an important question. I think, I think the question is, what can we actually do, and what can we actually understand now about this? You know, for example, um, coming back to what I was just saying, uh, there's a a really interesting person named Steve Burns. Um, who was a physicist by training um, and then recently sort of dropped out uh, uh, and is supported on, on some kind of fellowship to work on AI safety research. But he's specifically working on this question about uh, given what we know about the biological brain, is there something you can say about AI safety? Um, And when you start to do that, if you, if you take seriously some of the stuff that I was just saying, like what if there are instead of one reward function for the brain, uh, as we have in current AI end to end learned systems? What if you have thousands of individually trained modules that are getting uh, training signals from a subcortical system that is itself a complicated intelligent machine? Um, then that starts to look actually quite different as an, even a basic framing of the AI safety problem is what do you do if you have multiple sub-agents or multiple sub, you know, cost functions or so on training it, versus this, uh, am I trained to optimize paper clips or am I trained to optimize something else right. monolithic? Um, and then there's yet other ideas, like whether you can make general, very advanced AI without having any kind of agentic um, emergent agency happen at all, and then there's kind of this higher level thing of what if you have lots of AIs of various kinds, but just civilization, like think about Facebook, yeah. right? Like Facebook in some sense, is kind of like a, not a, a GI, but it's kind of civilization and Facebook are sort of maybe kind of misaligned in certain right. ways <laughs> in terms of like at an overall scale. Um, so I think the question is, how do you hone in on the framing and are there any like really interesting, actionable, near-term research problems there? Interesting. Um but like on the margin, you know, the AI safety research that's going on, for the most part, I think is very worthwhile because they're taking stabs at these stuff. Right. Uh, and sort of the way I think that, you know, just various kinds of pure math are, are interesting uh, because they kind of give the fodder for whatever's the next round of thinking about this. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm broadly like very supportive of a bunch of AI, different kinds of AI safety research, near term and long term that people are thinking about. I'm just not convinced that it's really converged. got it here's the type of research like tell me what as a program manager i should fund in ai safety research it's still very very unclear to me
0: gotcha so i should be looking into it but there's there's a lot of different avenues and maybe even ones you know that aren't broadly discussed yet yeah and but in general um
1: ai safety biosafety um i think these are really important things to be, yes. you, have to, 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 you have to have the community working on these things or else, where's the idea is going to come from? <laughs> Nobody else, will have thought about it. We and don't it, know. Yeah, it, uh, but, but it's obviously a, a complicated trade-off because I think a lot of what has galvanized AI safety research in recent years is progress in AI. Yeah. And so I, I'm not into the idea of trying to slow down progress in AI. I right. think you want to actually in some ways deepen and the foundations and improve the the level of rigor perhaps of certain kinds of AI. But uh, but it's it's not that you you slow it down. It's that these things have to kind of come in locks. Right. But if we if we somehow say AI safety, this is all bullshit, you know right. <laughs> okay, can I swear on your podcast? If we say something like this, uh, then, then we're really excluding something that's very important. So, yeah,
0: and, and I'm definitely with you. One of my, I, I think, I, very much in the same vein of your thing. I think AI safety is important to think about, and also, I think it's it would be very bad to like, oh, we can't do anything with AI. No more research. You know, just like cut it off, because I think it's you know, computer computers is one of the few are, it's one of the few areas of our society where you can still, you know, make a lot of progress. You know, it's it's it, there's. You don't have the FDA like stopping yeah. you. And, and like, I, I don't want it like just the we're going to stop now, no more AI research. And then, you know, there's all these. Another one effects. that I think
1: is maybe sort of neglected is um, research on sort of broadly the category of thing that Facebook does, like recommender systems and influencing human behavior and oh, uh, surfacing information and propagating information in networks but that is sort of more for the public benefit, right? Right. So you could imagine uh, versions of Twitter algorithms that are actually searching for correct information as opposed to viral information or so on. But that I feel like those are tools that we should be able to, I should be able to get a Chrome extension that looks at my Twitter and sort of helps fact check me or helps recommend me a different set of content that's more beneficial to me uh, long-term. And so we're actually even thinking about whether there are, kind of focused research organization type problems in, in sort of that that space of improving Definitely. improving human reasoning improving discourse um, and th- those are also i think like a broader ai safety kind of yeah. question which, yeah
0: absolutely yeah you look at uh, i don't know if you've ever seen like a, a younger person using tiktok and you know it's like recommender system it's just they're just swiping for hours and it's not clear there's really any social benefit to it at all you know like yeah or or us uh right. you know and
1: and and that feels to me like it is um one of these areas where uh there's kind of this this disproportionate balance of power um kind of on the on the 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 selling ads side of things versus on the kind of uh humanity figures out how to use these things really well um so maybe 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 we need a sort of public benefit um you know uh, gigawatts of computing kind of right. uh, situation exactly. um, for, for for some of these alternative approaches, yeah.
0: Definitely. Um, so I, before we jump into overrated, underrated, I have one more question. It's, it's kind of a broad question. But, you know, so you've been working on this stuff, you've been thinking about it since, you know, at least since you were a teenager, you know, making progress in, in neuroscience and um, all these related fields. Uh, you know, have you gotten more, more bullish on your ability to make progress Um, over the years less bullish you know maybe it varies over time I don't know
1: yeah I'm I'm more optimistic now than I've been in a while that's awesome Um, I think that we're what's funny to me with the focus research organizations is it's sort of a very simple idea Um, you know it's uh, and yet it's kind of getting traction I would say in both the philanthropic and government settings and it makes me optimistic of just sort of if you really just articulate very clearly what you want and you kind of go around yelling about it um, and you have the right network and, right, you know, right, yeah. in certain ways and you, you, you try to try to be rigorous in certain ways. But um, I'm optimistic about the pot, more optimistic now about change in the organizational side, the funding side. I nice. think there's a lot of post COVID stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff from, from, from uh, cryptocurrency and the set of people that made a lot of money on cryptocurrency and what, what they can do to, to, to fix science. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic about the set of organizational and funding modalities that are spinning up now that I feel like really, you know, there certainly were when I was describing the early period of being in yeah. grad school, sort of being disillusioned about, about uh, what can we do there? there were, I mean, that was around the same time, you know, DeepMind and other kinds yeah. of things were being started. And so there certainly was a lot of organizational innovation, you know, the Allen Institute and a b- b- bunch of, a bunch of other great things. But I, I, I Personally, feel like the the prolif- there's a proliferation right now um, of potential to create new organizational modalities for these things. It's super exciting, um, whether they be PARPA or FROS or um, you know bespoke institutes for particular problems or
0: any number of other things. That's really good. That's really good. A little a little note of hope there. I, I really like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so overrated, underrated. I'm um, just throw a term out. Just tell me, it's overrated, underrated, uh, and maybe a sentence why. You know, if you got something. I love this. <laughs> right, and and maybe it's correctly rated. I don't know. Um, so George Church, overrated, underrated? Oh, still underrated. I mean, still, still underrated. Absolutely.
1: Um, he, you know, he's, he, you know, he's in mid 60s. He's starting to be recognized, <laughs> but <laughs> just no. So I mean, he, I, I, I think that. Um, so many so many ideas um you follow them a few steps back and, yeah. and you get to george either as a catalyst of those ideas or as the actual human origin awesome. of those and uh, he's he's just so supportive and you know I, I think of it actually i talk about it a lot with with fros is yeah you know how, how are you going to do uh, make some a really exciting environment for someone to work in an fro if you're not giving them startup equity from the beginning because um, right. you know depending on how they're, they're done uh, they're, you know, they're often going to be, you know, 501c3 nonprofits or, or subsidiaries right. of that. Or, um, and I think about the church lab where it's a, it's a, it's a university, but it's basically like a startup incubator without even trying, right. Because right. it just gets so many great people and then the things that they do afterwards are so shaped by that uh, and by the presence of that network that they, uh, you know, it, it changes their opportunity space to just hang out there. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I really want new research organizations to sort of have have that character where it's not that you have to necessarily make money off of something directly, but but you benefit by being at the ground floor of right a huge amount of entrepreneurial
0: activity. Yeah. How do you get some of the upside? Yeah. And to think, you know, eight eight miles down the road from here at Duke, you know, they kicked him out. You know, like you're not coming to class. Yeah. You know, like, holy crap, you know, guys. Geez.
1: Look, Duke, Duke is a really awesome place. Uh, they can allow to make one <laughs> or two mistakes. That's probably if you know that's a really big mistake, though.
0: Right. That's right. that was a big mistake. Uh <laughs> um, Neuralink. Uh overrated, underrated, kind of correctly, right? What do you think?
1: depends on who you ask. So I, I think that the neuroscience community, uh, s- some subset of the neuroscience community, I think underrates it somewhat. I think that gotcha. there's a, te- a tendency to sort of say, well, look, the data that they've produced isn't anything particularly special scientifically. Um, so let's just discount the fact that that microchips and surgeries and stuff that they've been yeah. developing, the packaging and all the engineering is much less it is it, it, just so much more advanced and so much more of a step towards real human applications um, than much more clunky um, engineering that's been done in the past, Um, wireless transmission of the data. So I I think that there are certainly some that underrate them. I think that the particular approach that they're taking of putting lots of little electrodes in the brain is overrated. Um, I think that it's actually very hard to avoid some of the things that they're working on, but but you know, immune responses in the brain, hitting gotcha. blood vessels, right. um, getting very wide coverage, not having to make an invasive and infection-prone uh, surgery. Right. Um, and there are certain things where you can substitute, you know, for for even for severely disabled, paralyzed uh, people, where even non-invasive technologies can still still give a lot of benefit. And so the cost benefit for that particular. Type of highly invasive technology, I'm less into, but you know, I'm still very into brain interfaces, and uh, I'm. I think that Neuralink is a generally a, a positive force in the world. And
0: nice. Yeah. Do you think there'll be like less invasive interfaces that will come along that are kind of a superior approach? Eventually, eventually, eventually. I, I
1: mean, DAR- DARPA actually has a, a program called I think it's called N Cubed which stands for non-invasive and non-surgical neurotechnology nice. which combines some of these ideas of non-invasive measurements like Colonel is working on yeah. with other ideas like sort of nanoscopic transducers whether they be biological or something else that help those non-invasive technologies to actually pick up a signal because oh, cool. the, you know neurons in your brain are not evolved <laughs> to to be able to be sensed by some right. piece of hardware they don't care um, but if you can put little transducers in there, that, that can, can make it much more powerful. Um, so down the line, but I think we're talking decades down the line, I think, yes. Um, and I'm also optimistic about certain kinds of near-term things in neurotechnology, medical applications and, and new kinds of deep brain stimulation or ultrasound stimulation or other things. Um, but I'm just not, um on board that the particular device Neuralink has shown so far is going to be the link. Like the thing. Right. The link, I gotcha. that, <laughs> the,
0: the iPhone of neural interface. Yeah. Right, right, just yeah. plugging that lightning cable right up there. Um, the Manhattan Project, overrated, underrated?
1: Gosh, that's the complicated one. And, uh, you know, I feel a little bad for, for, in one of my early tweets about FROs, I, I referred to as mini Manhattan Projects. And some yeah. people said, well, you know, not everybody thinks the Manhattan Project was a great outcome. Um, for for humanity yeah um and many of the scientists that worked on it i don't think think of it as a great outcome um but boy um the combination of um organizational and technical excellence of the absolute best in the world on both fronts uh and truly pushing on something that was life or death uh Underrated, <laughs>
0: you know, yeah, yeah. I, have you read uh, Now It Can Be Told by General Groves? I, no, highly recommend it. He, you know, he, he and he just uh, so he's the guy, he, you know, General Groves, he managed the sure. he's he yeah. kind of like the management side of the army yeah. corps of engineers, you know, and he like picks you know, in the early parts of the book, he, you know, he picks Oppenheimer, and the entire army leaderships like, you can't pick him because you know, he's like yeah drama is politics they don't line it and general Grimes is like i don't care he's the best that's yeah. the one we're going with and like all this just story after story of like how they just willed this into being and like and, and yeah. you're right you know that there's obvious downsides to having atomic vibes, and there's a lot of bad things that happen but the technical accomplishment in such a short period of time is very impressive it's,
1: it's extraordinary yeah no so so in in general so i i have a two five-hour car rides coming up uh next weekend and uh planning to to have audiobook of uh richard rhodes the making of the atomic bomb uh nice. as my my backdrop
0: yeah. that's awesome that's gonna be good um so. <laughs> yeah hopefully so <laughs> that's great um well adam thanks so much for coming on do you have any parting thoughts and where can people find you
1: thanks for having me yeah i know great great to chat um awesome questions and yeah um yeah you can google uh, adam Marvelstone or i have a website um still link to my old MIT address and uh, you can Google focus research organizations and find our white paper about that. Um, yeah.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Adam. Really appreciate Thanks so it. much. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis and I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.